0: Our great God, to whom all praise and honor are due, we come before You through Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of Your Holy Spirit, we come before You to give You thanks and praise. We give You thanks for adopting us, so we can cry out to You, Abba, Father. We give You thanks for justifying us, so that we know that we are right with You and that our sins are forgiven. We thank You for the high privilege of worship, of entering Your heavenly sanctuary to join in the praise of angels, archangels, and the multitude of saints who have entered glory ahead of us. We thank You for making us a royal priesthood. We thank You, Lord, that Your mercies are new every morning, especially every Lord's Day morning, and that You promise to build Your church upon the rock of Christ so that even the gates of hell cannot withstand the victorious march of your people. Make us ever mindful of all Christ has suffered and accomplished and won for us, that we might put our whole trust in Him alone and be assured that His blood has washed us clean, that through His agony on the cross, our salvation has been secured. Grant us, O Lord, every good and perfect gift, and every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We thank You for giving us all things pertaining to life and godliness in Him, and for making His grace sufficient to meet our every need in every circumstance. And now as Your gathered people, we ask You to exalt Yourself upon the praises of Your people as we acclaim You. The all-powerful, all-wise, all-righteous Creator and the gracious, loving Redeemer of all who call upon Your name. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Sure are His promises and gracious is His truth. We yield ourselves to You. We surrender before Your majesty. We bow before Your throne in heaven. We give You all glory in the name of Your Son and by the working of Your Holy Spirit. Amen. Our
1: lesson of the day comes from 3rd John. Listen carefully to God's Word. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them by name. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have manifest yourself to us in the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have preserved your written word for us throughout the ages, that we might know the way of salvation, that we might know you and know you tremble at Your threats and take comfort in Your promises. Lord, refine us, sanctify us, consecrate us to this day as living sacrifices. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you were going to go through the Bible and study verses that talk about the nature of the church, or the mystery of salvation, you probably wouldn't turn to 3 John first. If you were going to write a book about mission work, if you were going to give a lecture on church planting, if you wanted to know what the mission of the church looked like, 3 John probably wouldn't be one of your go-to sources. But that's... That's unfortunate, because hidden under uh, what seems like sort of a, uh, an innocuous letter uh, from Third John to some guy named Gaius that you probably don't really even know that much about, are all of these rich truths about what it means to be the people of God, what it means to live out the gospel in the world, what it means to carry out the mission of Christ in discipling the nations. And how exactly we go about doing those things. Today, I want to examine uh, a, a, st- a statement that John makes in verse seven. This will probably be the conclusion to the series of messages that I've preached on Second uh, and Third John, and I want to end with this examination of verse seven in this little hidden nugget uh, of a treasure that we find here in verse 7. John makes this statement almost just in passing. He says about these brothers that Gaius has, to whom Gaius has shown hospitality, he says, "...for they have gone out for the sake of the name, the missionaries, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these." that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now this allusion to those who have gone out for the sake of the name is uh, probably also a reference to what John says in 1 John 2.19, this verse that sometimes gets misunderstood. It talks about those who have gone out that were not really ever from us. This is a reference to false teachers who are going out claiming to have been sent by the apostles. And John says, These false teachers were never sent by us. They've gone out. They've gone out on a, a missionary journey, but they're spreading false teaching. They were never sent by us and they were never part of us. This is part of what John is referring to. These missionaries, these brothers, these church planners are the real deal. They have been sent out for the sake of the name. By the apostles, and then John says that they have received nothing from the Gentiles. They were not going around asking for money uh, at the local, you know, Kiwanis club or wherever to to fund their missionary efforts. They were they had received nothing from the Gentiles. But here's the. Here's the the rub. Here's the interesting point that we have to pick up on. Gaius was a Gentile. Gaius, in fact, he's sort of the quintessential Gentile. Gaius was one of the most common names in the entire Roman Empire at that time. You see several people named Gaius in the book of Acts alone. Gaius was a Gentile, but John says that these Missionaries have gone out receiving nothing from the Gentiles. What, what does John mean? Does he mean you're the only Gentile who's ever helped these people? Or does he mean something else? Does he mean, is, is he talking about Gentile in a new and different way than what we may be used to reading throughout the rest of scripture if we pay close attention to the way the apostles used the word jew and gentile just like john here we'll see that christ has redefined what jew means and what gentile means actually he's brought them to their he's brought the word jew to its full meaning it means it comes from the word for praise and he has brought that Word to its fulfillment. But what we'll see, and what John is alluding to here, is that the distinction between Jew and Gentile has now been redefined in very dramatic ways. Gentiles now, according to John, are not non-Jews or non-Israelites or non-circumcised people or non-descendants of Abraham. Gentile refers to everyone outside the church. Gentile refers to non-Christians, non-believers. And that's what John means when he says this. But this is a radical shift. This is a fundamental redefinition of the division that has separated humanity for all the centuries and millennia that have preceded it. Let me just take a few other examples from the New Testament that point this out very clearly and then look at some of the implications of this redefinition. In 1 Peter 2, the passage we heard uh, this morning, Peter piles on this Old Covenant language uh, that God had uh, applied to Israel, to Abraham and his descendants. Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai. You're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Isaiah 43, Hosea 1, those who were not a people are now a people. Peter piles up this covenantal language that was reserved for Israel, and he applies it to a church that, by everything that we can tell, is filled with Gentiles. These are churches spread across Asia Minor. And Peter is applying this unique covenantal language to these churches. He goes on in chapter four of his letter to describe, and then he, he goes on and say, "Keep your conduct among the Gentiles pure, so that when they revile you, when they as evildoers re- revile you, you'll be without above reproach." So Peter is sees this huge shift in the application of the covenantal promises, the covenant identity of Israel is now focused and embodied in the church. Ephesians 2 and 3 is another classic passage where Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel. What is the heart and soul of the gospel? What is the mystery of the gospel that was hidden for ages and has now been revealed It's that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that separated Jew and Gentile and He has formed one new humanity in Himself. One new man out of Jew and Gentile alike are now the body of Christ. The new Israel. In Galatians at the very end of the book, Galatians is is dealing with this subject in in very uh, great detail. This is the issue in the book of Galatians and in most of the other uh, New uh, New Testament epistles. But at the end, Paul speaks a blessing on the Israel of God, and after all the the mean things after after how hard Paul has been on the party of the circumcision and those who want to go back to the Old Covenant, we know that this is a reference to the church, the Israel of God. The problem in the book of Galatians is not primarily that there are people who are trying to earn their salvation through some sort of legalism but that they want to turn back the clock of redemption history and re-erect the barriers that Jesus has come and demolished. And then one more example from 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul writes that each each of you should learn to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Gentiles are defined, we can, uh, in reading into what he's saying, he's saying Gentiles are those who do not know God. The Thessalonian church, like most of the other churches in the New Testament, are filled with Gentiles. But he speaks to them as if they are not. And he speaks of those outside as the Gentiles. This, you could multiply examples of this type of language but this this is central to John's letter and his theology and what he is exhorting Gaius to do. No longer are the biological descendants of Abraham, the ethnic Israelites no longer are they the privileged people because of their bloodlines or because of their circumcision. Jesus has come and undone the curse of Babel. Through the outpouring of His Spirit, the resurrected Christ has reunited the nations that were so long separated by sin. God's promise to Abraham to bless all the nations through Him has been fulfilled in Christ who has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. The church is the new Israel. We are the true Jews. The covenant community of God's people. And how has this change taken place? We've already uh, alluded to this. How has this change taken place? Think in terms of Third John. This change has taken place Through God's hospitality. It's one one perspective that we can uh, look at this through. God's hospitality has changed history forever. God's hospitality has redefined the fundamental categories of humanity. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has reconciled sinners to Himself, Jew and Gentile alike. We who were expelled from the garden sanctuary because of our sin are now ushered into the very throne room of God in union with Christ. We who were dead in trespasses and sins have been made alive together with Jesus through His resurrection. We who were God's enemies are now welcome at God's banquet as his friends. The gospel of the kingdom is a gospel of welcome, a gospel of hospitality. And this this progressive, uh, we see this reality embodied in the progressive transformation of God's sanctuary on earth throughout history. The Old Covenant sanctuary was hidden from sight, shrouded in smoke and darkness, and only very few could even get anywhere near to the place where God's presence dwelt. And over the course of redemption history, you see the temple changing and transforming and pieces added and uh, things altered and Finally, at the end of the book of Revelation, we see that the New Jerusalem, which is the church where God dwells among His people, has these very thick walls, but there's no gates. And you see the kings of the nations bringing their glory into the city. Jesus has come and manifest the glory of God to us. He has rent rent the veil of the temple so that the, He basically decommissioned the temple. There's no uh, division. There's nothing separating us from God's throne room. We now have access to the heavenly sanctuary in Christ. It is God's hospitality in Christ that has brought about this astounding transformation. God's people are now welcomed into the sanctuary where we were once forbidden to go. Gentiles now feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The church is the new humanity that Jesus has formed as His body. And I think there is a very important reason that John makes allusion to this reality in his exhortation of hospitality to Gaius and to the church where he is. In light of God's overwhelming hospitality, in light of this drastic redefinition of Jew and Gentile, John and the other apostles see Christian hospitality not as optional or inconsequential But as an essential mark of the Christian life and an indispensable aspect of the church's mission in the world. Not the only aspect, but an indispensable aspect of the church's mission in the world. And why is this? Because Christian hospitality, Christian hospitality is essential to the mission of the church because Christian hospitality is ultimately an extension of God's hospitality. And for this very reason, hospitality is central to our mission because of a number of reasons. The first of which is that hospitality, Christian hospitality, reinforces our identity as the people of God. Gaius's hospitality to the brothers was an act of allegiance to the apostles. By Gaius showing hospitality to to these missionaries, he was aligning himself with the apostles. He was he was de- he was showing his colors. He was declaring what side he was on by refusing to show hospitality to the false teachers, something that John mentions in greater detail in Second John, he's denouncing these false teachers uh, who are traveling around claiming to be sent by the apostles. Hospitality and who you show hospitality to and how you show hospitality to them is essential to reinforcing our identity as the people of God. We can see this uh, very clearly from two opposite examples from the life of Peter that demonstrate the essential role of hospitality in the church's mission and in reinforcing our identity as the people of God. Acts 10. Peter is summoned to go to Cornelius' house. And he's at first... Resistant, he has the vision on the roof of the of the animals, the sheep being let down from heaven. Uh, he says, uh, "No, Lord, I've never, you know, never touched anything unclean." And God says, "Don't call unclean what I have called holy." So he goes uh, to Cornelius's house. He uh, they're God-fearers, but they're Gentiles, and he preaches the gospel. Cornelius says, I was told to summon you, so now you're here, so tell us something. And Peter just preaches the Gospel. And as he's preaching the Gospel, they receive the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues as sort of a uh, follow-up of uh, Pentecost in in this Gentile household. But what's the the main thing that bothers the, uh, the Judaizers when Peter tells about what happened. What's the main thing? What is he accused of? In Acts 11.3, the opponents of Peter who are upset by this are most concerned that Peter has gone and eaten with uncircumcised men. The fact that Peter has eaten with uncircumcised men. The fact that Peter was willing to share a meal with Cornelius and his household was a pivotal event in the church's efforts at fulfilling the Great Commission, at preaching the Gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth. What scandalized Peter's opponents was his hospitality, was who he shared a meal with. But Peter, by his actions, by his willingness to, to share a meal and to preach the Gospel to these Gentiles. He manifested in His actions the Gospel that Jesus has come to fulfill His covenant with Abraham. Now, on the other hand, peter we see in Peter's life the best example of this in Scripture probably, but we also see the other side. The worst example. But they both show us the importance of hospitality in the mission of the church. The book of Galatians, uh, Paul tells us that Peter was eating with the Gentiles as he had begun to do with Cornelius. He got it right the first time. He was on the right track, but then he started to get pressure from these the, the circumcision party from Jerusalem. They started to put pressure on him not to eat with the Gentiles, to uphold uh, the, the code of cleanliness of, of not eating with uncircumcised people. And Peter caved. He stopped eating with Gentile Christians. Now this may seem to us like maybe just bad social skills or bad table manners or uh, an insignificant faux pas. On Peter's part, um, but Paul saw this as an affront to the gospel itself. Peter, uh, Paul says, he confronted Peter to his face at Antioch because Peter's behavior quote was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter's hospitality to these Gentiles or lack thereof was a fundamental expression of an anti-gospel. It was tantamount to his denying the gospel itself. And so the church's mission, Paul had to take action and call Peter out on this because the church's mission, the church's unity, the church's identity as Jew and Gentile without that distinction... um, Abolishing that distinction is now the new reality in Christ. And so sharing life and sharing a table with God's people from all different backgrounds, of all different colors, of all different races, of all different ages, of all different socioeconomic classes, this this simple practice is is a very significant way that we reinforce our identity as God's people. You've heard it said that you are what you eat. And that's that's true. But you also, by the corollary of that, is you are who you eat with. You are who you eat with. When you gather each Lord's Day to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper and to feast at God's table together, you are who you eat with. You are the body of Christ. And that is why the church's identity uh, throughout so much of church history has centered around our identity as brothers and sisters feasting together as God's children at the Lord's table. We learn our table manners here at this table, and that flows out into hospitality in the world. As we consider these, the importance of hospitality in reinforcing our identity as God's people, and we see examples like Gaius and Peter, we also uh, come to realize that hospitality is essential to, to the church's mission because it is inherently evangelistic. Hospitality is inherently evangelistic. Christian hospitality enacts and embodies the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of reconciliation, the good news for the poor, the binding up of the brokenhearted, the liberty for the captives, the year of the Lord's favor that Jesus has came to proclaim. Hospitality reinforces our identity as God's people, but it also gives hope to the hopeless and the broken. Through Christian hospitality, making room in our lives for one another, those who grieve or who have experienced deep hurt are reminded that Jesus knows their anguish and is with them in their suffering. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about the importance of the fellowship of God's people. And those who are always able to gather and worship with God's people take for granted the importance of just being in the presence of other believers as a physical, tangible witness of God's presence in our lives. Women who have been abused or experienced crisis pregnancy are given hope of restoration and wholeness through the church's hospitality. One author interviewed uh, dozens of women who had aborted their babies and asked them, what would you have needed in order to finish your pregnancy? She said every one of them, almost every one of them without fail said, I just needed one person to stand by me. I just needed one person to stand by me. Christians who struggle with anxiety, fear, loneliness, same-sex attraction, or shame are reminded of their true identity in Christ when the church is demonstrating the kind of hospitality that we are called to in God's Word. Because hospitality is inherently evangelistic. But it cuts both ways, doesn't it? When we offer hospitality as an extension of God's hospitality, we see all of these things, uh, all of these good things come out of it. It gives hope. It gives Uh, comfort, it gives peace, it gives reassurance. But the flip side is that when the church fails to demonstrate hospitality, the kind of hospitality we're exhorted to in Scripture, we are preaching the gospel inaccurately. We, with our actions, are preaching a false gospel when we fail to demonstrate hospitality of God in our lives with one another and in our interactions with the world. When we fail to love sinners or welcome strangers or care for the hurting, we are undermining the gospel of reconciliation that we profess with our mouths. And this is why hospitality is Is so powerful, so potent, because it represents the very hospitality of God for good or for ill. And so while there are ways that we, there are times and and instances when we need to repent of the ways that we undermine the advancement of the gospel through our failure to show hospitality we can take comfort in the fact that Christian hospitality allows us to participate in God's mission in the world to a greater extent than we may have ever realized. Christian hospitality is essential to the church's mission because it involves the whole body of Christ in the mission of Christ in the advancement of the kingdom based on what we know of Gaius from 3 John, we have no indication that Gaius was a missionary or a church planter or even a pastor. We, the best guesses uh, that scholars have come up with is that the church was meeting in his home and that he was a close friend uh, of John, maybe an elder in the church. We don't, we don't even know that much. It's clear that John uh, Gaius is not on the mission field He's manning the shop, right? He's keeping the, uh, the the lights on at home. But John plainly says that Gaius' support for these missionaries, his support for these church planters, makes him a fellow worker for the truth. Gaius is partnering with the advancement of the kingdom. He's partnering with the spread of the gospel, with the planting of churches, through his support of these brothers, through simply providing a place for them to stay, providing them a meal on their journey, and sending them on their way in a manner worthy of God, he is a fellow worker for the truth. What they accomplish, Gaius shares in that. What they are able to do, what what they, uh, the churches that they plant, and the souls that are saved, and the uh, the, the cities that are that are uh, transformed through their ministry, Gaius has a part in that. He shares in their work through his hospitality. There has always been a tendency to think of pastors and missionaries as more spiritual uh, than those who aren't on the mission field overseas, risking their lives, living in harsh conditions, whatever the case. But this, this misguided thinking completely ignores the reality that the church is the body of Christ. We are all members of the same body, but we don't all have the same gifts or the same callings or the same opportunities or the same role to play in the body. We can't all be the feet or the hands. Somebody's got to be the shoulder. Somebody's got to be, you know, the, the part that's not uh, doing all the important stuff, the obvious stuff out front, getting the spotlight. But we all share together in the work of the body as members of the body. when we show hospitality to missionaries or church planters or Bible translators or those who are uh, helping to uh, alleviate the poor through um, the mercy ministry, when we support and pray for these, these workers, we are showing hospitality and serving together with them. In the truth, when you volunteer your time at uh, a, an organization or when you go on a, a mission trip or when you find ways that you can serve, when you open your home to uh, a missionary or an evangelist or uh, a student, when you support uh, the work of a, of a mission organization, when you give your money, when you tithe to the church when you sponsor a child so that groups like Compassion International can work with churches to help that child escape poverty and disease and danger, when you raise your children to love God and His people, you are participating. You are fellow workers for the truth and the advancement of the Gospel and the spread of Of the kingdom. This is an essential role of hospitality in the mission of the church. We are called, certainly, we are called to more than just writing checks to pay the professionals. Certainly, we aren't called to some sort of uh, holy slacktivism. Uh, But when we show everyday, ordinary hospitality to God's people, And when we find even insignificant ways to support the spread of the gospel and the work of the church, we are sharing in the labors of others. We are multiplying that work. We are sharing in that work. God's hospitality has changed the world. We are called to preach the gospel and disciple the nation's by, in part, extending hospitality to one another and to the world to support the work of the church, to support the spread of the kingdom. It's certainly true that whatever we do to the least of these, we do to Jesus. But it's also true that whatever we do to the least of these, we do to For Jesus and with Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love comes to completion in us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel of welcome, for the gospel of reconciliation. And of hospitality that you have shown to us in Christ, that you have made us your children, that you have made us heirs together with Christ, members of your household. Grant, Lord, that we might extend your welcome to one another and to the world, that we might know that we are your people, that we might encourage one another through our hospitality, through our witness, that we might share in the work of the kingdom. And the spread of your gospel around the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.